following audio was recorded at Stone Oak Bible Church and is part of our series in Genesis. For previous messages or to find out more about our church, visit us at stoneoakbible.com. Like I said, we're in the book of Genesis. Uh, We're going to talk today about Genesis chapter 4, but Genesis overall, it's a book of beginnings. It's a book of firsts. We've seen a number of firsts already as we've gone through the first three chapters of Genesis. If we think back, we saw the very first creation. We saw within this first creation the first man and the first woman. We saw the first trees and the first fruits and the first water. And these are all good things. We've also seen the first sin, and we've seen the first deception, the first shame. And through all of this, we've seen the first grace as well. Oftentimes within our lives... These first moments are usually some of those those cherished memories, some of the things we oftentimes uh, continue to think back on. One of the big ones for me was the first time I got that driver's license, that that piece of plastic that gives you the authority to go and wreck a car. And for me, whenever I turned 16 on my birthday, I remember mom and dad took me out of school, and I went and I took the driving test, and you sit there, and I had the... I don't know if he's a police officer or not, but in my mind, he's like the ultimate police officer of like the entire world. And I'm sitting there and I'm a nervous wreck. And you go through and you you drive and you think, I think I did everything, but I'm not really sure. And then you come back and he's like, you got a 90%. And I'm like, yes, I passed. And they give you that little piece of plastic that, that gives you their approval. It's the first time you got that. Maybe your first car. If you think back to that very first car you ever got. For me... It was a 1999 Ford Escort. Four-door, kind of reddish of some sort, beautiful stained cloth interior. Someone, I'm sure, had, had previously smoked in it for a number of years, and it had that lovely, you open the doors, and this is mine. I was proud of that first car. Maybe the first sporting event you ever went to. You can think back to that. For me, it was Cardinals baseball growing up. The first baseball game I ever went to, I remember that one as well. Uh, The first time I ever saw my spouse. She was in the youth room, and I walked in, and I thought, who is that lady? We were freshmen in high school, and I instantly thought, I need to get to know her a little bit better. For me as well, within the confines of our marriage, I remember standing up on a stage very similar to this on my wedding day. And on my back left were two double doors that that opened, and I could see instantly my, my father-in-law, about to be my father-in-law, because he's slightly taller, and there was a, a crowd that was standing, and I couldn't see my bride until she came around that corner, and I got that first glimpse of my bride, and just right now, it just chokes me up. On that day, even, it choked me up to see my bride coming the very first time I saw her. <clears throat> Ooh, jeez. Wow. Uh, and go even further within our, our marriage, the first child, the, the joy of, of having a child and to, to hold my son for the very first time. Oftentimes, our firsts are positive, but not always. There's also those times where we wish we would have never had that first. Possibly the first funeral that you ever attended, you possibly remember that. The first hard conversation within marriage. My wife and I, of course, we don't fight. We have a great marriage. We have hard conversations within marriage. And you remember those hard conversations within marriage. Possibly the first time you ever had to punish your child, the first spanking, 
The first, my child is now old enough to understand right and wrong, and there's discipline that has to come from me. Or even as a parent, the first time you ever stepped on a Lego, you possibly remember that one really well. Oftentimes, our firsts are are these memories that we cherish, both positive and negative. This morning, as we look into Genesis chapter 4, we're going to look towards another first. This is the first death of a man at another man's hand. We see the first time that sin has led here to a, a physical act against fellow man. And we get in Genesis chapter 4, the first glimpse of life within a fallen world. We're going to walk through this text in, in order. We're going to go through the entire chapter in a verse-by-verse manner. We're going to begin uh, by looking at the first five verses. So if you would, just read along with me of Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Now Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. So if you've been with us, you, you kind of can feel the, the timeline of events that have occurred. Uh, we begin, God has created everything. He has created man. He has created woman from man. Everything was good. Man and woman, if we remember back to Genesis chapter 3, however, something went wrong here. They come against God. And the one thing that they weren't supposed to do, they end up doing. They eat of this piece of fruit. This small act had huge consequences both for them as well as for us. They were removed from the perfect habitat of Eden, and they were placed into a much tougher place that required them to to work uh, to gain the resources from the ground. This is the scene where Genesis chapter 4 picks up here. Adam and Eve here go through the very first experience of childbirth. We see the very first family. Try and place yourself in the shoes of either Adam or Eve in this scenario. As you are the very first family, and you've just had the very first child born upon the earth, there's possibly a lot of joy within that, of we now have flesh of our flesh. This is from us, that, that even within this context, we can see with, with Eve saying that I have, uh, I have gotten or I have obtained a man from the help of the Lord. She's saying, I have helped to create this child. Eve, however, probably perceives this not only with incredible joy, but she probably also is thinking really, really well back to Genesis chapter 3. She's just gone through childbirth. If you remember back in Genesis chapter 3, one of the, the things that happens because of them eating this fruit is that she will experience pain within childbirth. I'm sure this is very fresh on her mind. And because of this pain, she's probably thinking back to, to what has just occurred here in Genesis chapter 3. And she's possibly also speaking back, thinking back to the prophecy. There's a prophecy within Genesis chapter 3 of one who would come against the crafty serpent. It's quite likely that Eve here is holding her first child, Cain, and thinking back to this prophecy and hoping possibly that this child will be the one to crush the head of the serpent. The first family here continues to grow, and they add now another son. They add Abel to the family. So we now have the two parents of Adam and Eve, and we have the two children of Cain and Abel. 
And if we look at how Cain and Abel are described, we're not given much detail. They're described by their jobs. So if you look here, and again, she bore his brother Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain, a worker of the ground. That's the only details that we get on as far as who is Cain and who is Abel, is their occupation, their profession. And if we look at this, we can see some foreshadowing of what is to come based upon their positioning. If we look at Abel, what is his job? He's a keeper of the sheep. His job is tasked with, with livestock. He's fulfilling what God has commanded them to do. If you turn back a page or two, Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. And God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Abel here is fulfilling what God has commanded them to do within his work. Cain's job. Cain is a worker of the field. He's a worker of the ground. Cain's job is directly related to the curse of the fall. Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. Cain's job is directly related to the fall, and Abel's job is directly related to the command that God has given them to have dominion over. There is foreshadowing here. Spoiler alert, a murder is coming. When dealing with modern-day murders, there's usually a couple of things that, that people try to look for uh, whenever a murder has occurred. One of my favorite shows a couple of years ago, I don't even know if it's still on, it was a show called 48 Hours. Um, I don't know what channel it was on. It was one of those high channels that aren't like the, the normal channels. And in 48 Hours, the whole premise of the show is um, there has been a death, and the, uh, this is a, a true crime type of story, and the investigators have 48 hours. Within this 48-hour time frame, uh, the likelihood of finding who has, who has murdered this individual severely declines after 48 hours. And so they, they look at these first two days as like the critical timepiece to figure out why this has occurred. Whenever they do this, they're looking for a couple of things. They're looking for possibly the instruments used. How did this happen? Uh, they're looking for eyewitnesses. Does, does anybody see anything? Did anybody hear anything? One of the other things that they're looking for, which can help a, a decision and can help possibly a persecution or a verdict of innocence, is a motive. The why question. Does anybody have a reason behind why this action occurred? It's the big question of, of why, and we see the answer. We see the motive here uh, in verses 3 through 5. In the, in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. So, so time has now passed here. We go from the birth, and we're unsure of the amount of time that has passed, but there's now an offering which has taken place. The two brothers have come, and they have presented this offering. Our text here is very vague as far as the, the questions that we would love to have with this offering. Why are they giving, giving an offering, and, and how are they giving this offering, and when are they giving this offering? We don't have all of those details. We're given the who, and we're kind of given the what here, and there's importance within both of these. 
Abel brings forth the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions, and Cain brings forth an offering from the fruit of the ground. So they're both bringing forth an offering which comes from their professions. Abel's bringing something from the livestock that he is in charge of, and Cain is bringing forth something uh, from the ground that he is in charge of. They're giving based upon what they currently have. One of these offerings here is accepted, and one of these offerings is disregarded. Did you pick up on what the Lord had regard for? At the end of verse 4 and into verse 5, and the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. It gives us a clue here if we look at what he had regard for, and it helps to understand the rest. The Lord has not only looked upon the offering here, but also he's looked upon the man. The problem doesn't appear to be with the offering, but instead it appears to be with the individual. And we can see the rest of our text chooses to not focus necessarily upon the offering, but it chooses instead to focus upon the individual. Cain and his offering has been, have been rejected, and Cain here reacts. His reaction is one of anger, and his physical features even represent the anger that he's feeling. His reaction doesn't go unnoticed either. God steps in here. We see God has entered the picture as a loving father. And his response seems so familiar to us because it's so familiar to what we just saw in chapter 3. Beginning in verse 6, The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must, must rule over it. He gives Cain here some rhetorical questions. If we think back to the last chapter, Adam, where are you? Does God know the answer to this question? He absolutely does. He is the creator of Cain. Don't miss that. He has created Cain. He knows where Cain is. He's the one who's created even the facial muscles that, that give him the ability to express his face falling. He's the one who has given him the emotional capacity to even experience anger. This is the God who has created this individual. He understands perfectly what's happening with Cain, and he wants Cain to have an option to his own sin. And God here presents him with a choice. He says, Cain, do well or don't do well. If he chooses to do well and seek repentance within this act, then there is restoration. However, if he does the opposite, then God warns him here. He says that sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for his soul. What a beautiful personification of sin that we have here. It's sitting outside the door. It wants to devour every piece of who Cain is. Church, things have not changed. This is still our circumstance today. Mike mentioned it last week, that the serpent has the same purpose, the same mission, and even the same tactics today that we saw in Genesis chapter 3. There's a hideous beast behind that door. Do not open it. Don't test the door handle. Don't look through the peephole. Don't do as kids often do where you put your hand underneath the door and wiggle your fingers. I've had the privilege of working with youth quite often. And one of the things that I love about youth is they're, they're willing to ask the questions that all of us are thinking. That kind of filter that we gain as we age is diminished severely. 
they, they often have a question um, whenever sin is, is talked about, or even a specific sin, is how far is too far? How close can I get to the line without stepping over? How close to the door can I get without opening? Can I jiggle the handle? Can I look at it? I'm not participating in the sin, but I can see it through the peephole. As adults, we do the same thing. We just don't have the gumption to kind of ask these same questions out loud. Sin here is not a small kitten. It's a roaring lion. It's walking around seeking to steal, to kill, and destroy. Don't jiggle the door handle. Don't look through the peephole. Don't slide your fingers under the door. Don't trust yourself. The heart is deceitful. Within our house, I have an incredibly vibrant daughter. Uh, she is very, very curious. In our house, we have a number of, of these right here. Anybody know what these are? Yeah, these are safety locks, okay? So, so how this works is it opens, and you slide that through the handles, and then you close it, okay? The reason we have these is because if I mentioned, I have a very, very vibrant very curious young daughter. She, uh, she loves to, to make noise as well, and she loves to, to take anything that she can find within cabinets and, and display it proudly upon the floor. And so we have, within our kitchen, a number of these on our cabinets. We have them on our pots and pans. We have them on her sippy cups. And most importantly, we have them locking out all of the terrible chemicals, which we all store underneath our, our kitchen sink. Why do I, as a parent, do this? Because I want my daughter to be safe from what is behind those doors. I want her to avoid the negative thing that is on the other side of that thin piece of wood which can affect her in so many ways. Church, we need more door locks in our lives. What practical safeguards do you hold within your own life to avoid sin? As a pastor, this is something that, that is huge. You can read every single week, it seems, that there is another pastor who has fallen to a moral failure. I don't want to be another witness. I don't want to be another statistic that ruins a witness for Christ. So for me personally, I have safeguards on my computer. My wife has access to, to areas within my computer that I don't even know about. My wife and I also have safeguards within our own marriage regarding the opposite sex. I won't ride with a, a, a female in a car alone by ourselves. These are some of the safeguards that we have put in place to protect ourselves. I, I want to be sure that I don't jiggle the knob. I don't want to open that door. I don't want to even slightly crack it. Just as Cain had to make the choice, we continually have to make the choice here to lock the door. Cain has made his choice. There's anger and there's sin within his heart against God. His physical reaction shows us even his spiritual condition. And oftentimes, our physical reaction can be a symptom of our spiritual condition. Cain here doesn't head back towards God. But instead, he physically heads away from God, and he walks with his brother into a field. This is so often our own response to sin. We've sinned against God, and we then choose to try and hide it from our fellow brothers. When people quit showing up to things, there's oftentimes something that can be going on. Attendance is important. I'm going to do something. If you're a community group leader, if you lead a community group, can I put you on the spot real fast? Would you mind standing up for me? If you lead a community group, just stand up for two quick seconds. I lied, it'll be longer than two seconds. All right, if you aren't currently in a community group, look at these people first of all. If you're not currently in a community group, find one that you think, yeah, I want to get to know that person. And be sure and grab them on the way out. Community group leaders, let me talk to you guys. I love you first of all. Thank you for what you do. Second of all, if people stop showing up, 
figure out why. Reach out to them. Go ahead and have a seat. If you're a community group member, do me a favor. If you've attended a community group at any time, raise your hand up for me. Excellent. You can put them down. If you just raised your hand, this is also your responsibility. If people quit showing up, if you're unsure of what's been going on, reach out to people. Figure out what's been happening. If you're a member at Stone Oak Bible, if you've gone through our membership process, do me a favor, raise your hand up as well. Thank you, put them down. You're also responsible for this. If you look around this room, everybody in here, we are responsible to one another. One of the last steps within our membership process is, is the, the Stone Oak Bible, it's our church covenant. Uh, our church covenant is simply our statement of responsibility. Um, it's our document which shows uh, what our members are agreeing to together. Notice in here, I'm going to read it. Notice in here how much it points to caring for one another and being present with one another. I'm going to just go through and read this document. Having, as we trust, been brought by divine grace to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and to give up ourselves to him, and having been baptized upon our profession of faith in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, we do now relying on his gracious aid, solemnly and joyfully renew our covenant with each other. We will work and pray for the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We will walk together in brotherly love as becomes the members of a Christian church. Exercise an affectionate care and watchfulness over each other and faithfully admonish and entreat one another as occasion may require. We will not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, nor neglect to pray for ourselves and others. We will endeavor to bring up such as may at any time be under our care, in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, and by a pure and loving example to seek the salvation of our family and friends. We will rejoice at each other's happiness and endeavor with tenderness and sympathy to bear each other's burdens and sorrows. We will seek by divine aid to live carefully in the world, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, and remembering that, as we have been voluntarily buried by baptism and raised again from the symbolic grave, so there is on us a special obligation now to lead a new and holy life. We will work together for the continuance of a faithful evangelical ministry in this church. As we sustain its worship, ordinances, discipline, and doctrines, we will contribute cheerfully and regularly to the support of the ministry, the expenses of the church, the relief of the poor, and the spread of the gospel through all nations." We will, when we move from this place as soon as possible, unite with some other church where we can carry out the spirit of this covenant and the principles of God's word. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen. This is our church covenant. This is our guiding document that as members, the, the last step within our membership uh, agreement is to sign the covenant. Did you notice how many times it calls us to care and to love and to admonish one another? Our physical condition can often show our spiritual condition. It can be a, a symptom of. We see Cain's physical reaction and his spiritual condition in verse 8 here. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Cain has now killed his brother. Our text, once again, is very vague regarding the details of this. It's very simplistic. All it says is he killed his brother. It doesn't give us the full details of the how. Blood has been spilt. Death of man has entered. In one chapter, 
notice how tremendous that sin has increased. It began with eating a fruit. Just a couple words earlier, it begins with a fruit, and now we're at murder. Sin breeds more sin. Man left to himself is very destructive. God is once again right here on the scene. Why does this happen, though? If Cain is angry at God, then why does he seem to take it out on his brother? What's the correlation between these two? What's the correlation between I'm upset and angry with God, my face has fallen, therefore I'm going to kill my brother? Well, there's jealousy involved with it. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer here has a quote, and he he quite simply says, why does Cain murder? Out of hatred towards God. It's out of his hatred for God and, and jealousy for his brother that he ends up acting against his brother. And although our sin is against God, there are often people involved in that as well. Continue with me in verses 9 and 10. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. This should once again seem very similar to the questions that were just proposed earlier in this chapter as well as the chapter before. God knows exactly where Abel is. He doesn't need Cain to answer this question. He's granting Cain once again the opportunity to come clean and to repent of his sin. Cain here responds with the famous, am I my brother's keeper? I know growing up I use it all the time. Where's your sister at? Am I my sister's keeper? I have no idea where she is. This is the second time that Cain has been given this opportunity here. Church, we have the same opportunity. Sin is right outside the door. And Christ is asking if you would like to turn from that door and run towards him. I urge you, continually run towards Christ. Abel's blood is crying out to God from the ground. We see within the Old Testament this idea uh, with blood and life belonging to God. And it continues here. Hebrews 11, chapter 11, verse 4, picks up on this idea as well. It says, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. It's my hope that when I die, through my faith, I still speak. I hope to leave a legacy behind that doesn't point to myself, but a legacy behind that points to Christ. It's my same hope for all of you. I hope that whenever you are long and gone, that your legacy still remains and points to Christ. And it's the same hope I have for this church. I hope that Stone Oak Bible, 20, 200, 2,000 years down the road, that Stone Oak Bible will be a church that is continually pointing towards Christ. It's from this ground that Abel's blood is crying out, And it's through this ground that God chooses to dispense his punishment of Cain. Verse 11. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You should be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. So God now begins the stage of punishment. Because of Cain's acts against his brother, God is dispensing punishment here. Cain is going to be a fugitive, a wanderer, and he will no longer be able to work the ground. This was his profession. This was his identity. This is the only marker that we had at the beginning of our text on who Cain is. 
Who is Cain? He's a worker of the ground. How is Cain punished? He can no longer work the ground. It's the only aspect that we get as far as his background, and it's now removed from him. How does Cain respond to this? What is his reaction to this punishment? Verse 13, Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Can you hear it in there? Cain's whining. Cain is whining. This is way too much. This is, this is a lot more than I, than I think I should get. I, I think my sentence should be a whole lot less here. That's not what I deserve. My punishment is way too great. He's like a small child which has just been told to stand in the corner, and, and there's, there's commotion involved. There's, I don't deserve this. this. This action that you're giving to me is not what I really truly deserve. I deserve something a lot better than this. There are a thousand reasons why Cain doesn't deserve this. Do you notice the language within this section even? It's very direct. If you look at the text, the punishment from God, count how many eyes, or count how many yous are within that text. He's speaking directly to Cain. And if you look at Cain's response, look at all the time he has an I or a me within there. We don't see any remorse within Cain in this text. He's upset. This is going to be too great for him to bear himself. All the while, his dead brother is laying next to him. It's a lot like if we had a CEO of a company who's upset that I'm making $2 million a year while his employees are all in poverty. Lift your head up, Cain. Look around. Look at your brother upon the ground and then say this punishment possibly is too great for you to bear. God in this instance, though, grants mercy to Cain. Verse 15. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain... Vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So God lets Cain know that he would preserve his life. He will grant him mercy and preservation of his life. He places a mark upon Cain here. It's a mark of mercy. God's judgment is oftentimes sprinkled with mercy. And we're unsure of what this mark really is. Me being a details guy, I want to like have more text within here. I want to know what exactly was this mark. If you look at different commentaries, there's a bunch of different uh, hypotheses of what this mark could be. It could be a tattoo. It could be uh, a haircut. It could be an angel that is with him. Uh, it could be even later on the city of Nod could be his protection. My favorite one is there's a commentator that said it's a bull mastiff, a, a dog, that he's traveling with a dog, and this dog is his protection so that no one can kill him. I was like, that's creative. I like that one. I don't know if that's biblical, but I like it. It's creative. The point isn't what the mark is, though, but it's the why of the mark. God offers mercy to Cain when he deserves none. He deserves what his brother has received. He, he deserves death, and yet he's granted mercy. Cain leaves and heads east to the land of Nod. The word Nod here, uh, throughout this text, the names are all very significant. The word Nod here, what it really means is wandering. So Cain, the wanderer, now settles in the city of wandering. Notice the location of the city as well. Where is it? It's east, east of Eden. If you look back at the end of chapter 3, Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden. They settle where? East of Eden. 
And here we have Cain now, kicked out of their established home, going further east. I believe this shows us through the physical compass here that our sin drives us even further from the garden and from the perfection found within God. Just as God has granted Cain mercy and grace within here, he does the same with us. Our punishment is a separation between us and God. And the punishment is far too great for us to bear. Thankfully, God has sent one who will take the punishment in our place. He takes the punishment that should have been placed upon my shoulders and he takes it upon his own. Praise be to God for the one who takes my punishment, which is too great to bear. Verse 17 through 24 presents us with some interesting detail. If you read this text, it's almost like we have two different things happen. And we have the story of Cain and Abel. And then beginning in verse 17 through 24, it's almost like we're chasing a rabbit here. It begins with Cain, but then it goes through a genealogy with some minor details within it. And it ends, once again, with another killing. Let's look at this section. Read with me verses 17 through 24. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad followed Mahujal, and Mahujal fathered Methushal, and Methushal fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Adah, and the name of the other, Zillah. Adah bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal, very creative naming. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He, he was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Namah. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Has anybody ever begun a reading plan and possibly not finished it out and you, you don't go through the whole thing? Of course not. So let me tell you about other people that do this. They, they begin reading plans and they go through them, okay? Uh, and oftentimes, if, whenever you're going through a reading plan, you come to something called genealogy. And genealogy is a, a, a lovely list of individuals that you struggle to pronounce, um, that you possibly are unfamiliar with, that you, you don't know who they are, and you think this is probably the only time they're mentioned in the Bible. Uh, if you've ever gone through a reading plan and you get to First Chronicles, be warned, the first nine chapters of First Chronicles are genealogy. Feel free to look over that. Begin your reading plan right there, right off the bat with some genealogy. <laughs> genealogy, oftentimes when we look at it, we think, well, this is really boring and I don't understand it, so we're often tempted to skip over genealogy. The names are hard to pronounce. Surely I'm not going to need to know who these people are later on. And if I do, I can just always come back and, and try and pronounce their names. They're in there for a reason, though. Genealogies have a purpose within our Bible. For this genealogy, I think it shows us two main things. The first thing I think this genealogy shows us is that cities can prevail and grow in all facets through common grace, which is dispersed by God to all people. If we look in this section, technology has increased. Farming has increased. Music has increased. Instrument building has even increased. As far as worldly standards go, this is like the 1904 St. Louis World's Fair. These guys are, are creating all kinds of things which are, are great for the entire world as well as for their individual city. A group of people have constructed for themselves a city apart from God, and it has grown tremendously. The other thing I think this genealogy shows is that sin has increased. 
we see within this text the first polygamy. The first polygamy outside of God's plan here. Lamech has taken on two wives. We also see that another death has occurred. And this one has occurred and then been boasted about. Lamech is proud that he has killed this young man who has wounded him. And he wears it as a badge of honor. If our text were to end there, it would be not really the most uplifting text within the Bible. It doesn't, though. It continues on. Verse 25 and 26. And Adam knew his wife again. And she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. For Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born. And he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So Adam and Eve, we go right back to where this chapter began. Adam and Eve have a son. This son here is Seth. Their line will continue through Seth here. This is the, the last line of this section is one of my favorite lines within this text. It said, At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. People began to call upon the name of the Lord. This can be translated a little bit differently even. It can literally be translated as people began to proclaim the Lord. We have the first death. We have no remorse. We see the first polygamy. We see the second death. We see boasting within the second death. And we end with the first worship. Through all of this, God is still upon his throne and is still bringing people to himself. This is a familiar story that we might have heard before. Throughout this text, though, we can see so many things pointing towards our own salvation that is found through Christ. Whenever we read this text, we, or any text in any story, we often like to place ourselves into the story. It's what writers often try to do, is to get you to imagine you are in this story as one of the characters. Within this, you're probably going to relate a whole lot more to Abel than you will to Cain. However, every one of us within this story are Cain. We've all come against God and chosen ourselves over him. We are Cain. And to take it even a step further, Christ is Abel. Abel was killed as an innocent bystander to an offering. And Christ was killed as our offering. Just as Cain and Abel presented offerings to God, we have Christ which has presented himself as the ultimate offering in our place. Throughout this text, we see God coming to a sinful man and offering him restoration and reconciliation. I don't know where you are at this morning, but this offer still stands. Christ has taken our place. The sin which has expounded and is still present today. Our sin has driven us from the perfection of Eden and into a fallen world. Through the blood of Christ, we can once again be in relationship with the almighty creator. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24 says this, And to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What is this better word? The blood of Abel called out for vengeance. The blood of Christ calls out for forgiveness. To end our time this morning, I'd like to read a quote from a guy named Horatius Bonar. If you're unfamiliar with Horatius, he was uh, a, an early 19th century um, hymn writer, as well as he was a prominent figure within the Church of Scotland. Let his words resonate with you this morning. Not what these hands have done can save this guilty soul. Not what this toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. Thy grace alone, O oh God, 
to me can pardon speak. Thy power alone, O Son of God, can this sore bondage break. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you. I thank you, Lord, for Christ. Father, I, I, I ask for forgiveness for myself, Father, that I often place myself in the good guy's shoes, Father, but, but ultimately, Lord, I am the murderer. And Lord, I, I thank you that, that you have made a way that through the, the blood of Christ, Lord, upon the cross, that there is restoration, there is reconciliation. Father, I pray for the legacy that we all leave. I pray, pray Lord, that, that as, as the, the time upon our earth is, is waning, Father, I pray, Lord, that, that the testimony that we speak, Lord, would continually point to your Son and, and the work that he has done. I pray, Lord, for Stone Oak Bible. I pray, Lord, that we would be a people continually professing the name of Christ to our neighbors and to our friends and our family, Father. Lord, we give you everything and we give you all the glory. It's your son's name that we pray. Amen.